Hi, this is Joel Scrivener, pastor of Oaks Church in McKinney, Texas. And I wanted to say thank you so much for listening, sharing, and supporting our podcast. I know that today's message is going to inspire you, challenge you, and empower you to fearlessly follow Jesus like never before. Now, let's check out today's message. How are you? Are we good? Good. I'm glad you're here today. Uh, Last uh, week, we announced uh, that we started a brand new prayer ministry. Thank you so much uh, for those of you that uh, joined that specific ministry. I mentioned to you you, that I personally was starting a prayer challenge uh, in my own personal life, that that the challenge is to do 100 hours of prayer, Uh, not really a time limit on it. It's not about anything else but just me positioning myself in the presence of God. Uh, I told you you can hold me accountable. One person, thank you, Chris, for holding me accountable this week. Um, I'm at 19 hours right now uh, in the first week, and I'm, I'm, I'm feeling like literally a different person. The amount of time I'm spending in the presence of God is absolutely life-changing for me, and I encourage you. Um, the only way we're going to affect the world the way we need to affect the world is if we are people of prayer, period. People of prayer. Follow your own convictions. Spend the amount of time that God is calling you to spend. But I encourage you to challenge yourself in that. Challenge yourself in the amount of time you spend in the presence of God. The first time my life was radically changed, radically changed, uh, was when I had a revelation, not just on tithing with my increase of my money, tithing on the the money that I had coming in. That's a non-negotiable for me. 10% of all increase that comes into my life belongs to God immediately. It's the redemptive portion. I'll never back down from that. I'll never stop talking about that. Radically changed my life. The second thing that radically changed my life was when I got a revelation that, that 10%, if I would give God a tithe of my time, you ever felt like you don't have enough time? I don't have time to pray, don't have time to do this, don't have enough time to do that. I got a revelation that if I would tithe my time to God, 24 hours in a day, 16 awake hours, I begin to spend two and three hours a day with God. During my college years, when my friends were partying, I was praying. And it radically changed and reshaped my life forever. So I just want to encourage you in that, in that regard, that if you want to have an experience, if you want to have the best life that God has for you, the best life that God has for you is found with intentional time in his presence. Intentional time. And you know what? I had plenty of time for God. I would be late to class in college because I was caught up in the presence of God. And I still had a 3.5, 3.8, depending on the different semesters. But my number one hobby and my number one habit was being in the presence of God. It shifted and changed my life forever. We've been in the middle of a series called Significance. I've loved this series. I hope that you have too. Uh, We talked last week about a man named Jephthah. If you've missed that, I would encourage you to go back and listen to that message. You can find it on YouTube at Oaks Church Texas. It's on our Facebook. It's on our website. Uh, I encourage you to do that. It, It was a great message, and it was about significance specifically and how God is calling us away from a good place of comfort and calling us into a place of service and of saying yes to him. He wants to open doors for us that no one can close, but it starts with us being willing 
to open the door. Jesus is standing at the door of your life. Will you open the door and let him in? Thank you so much for the 30 of you that joined some of our serve groups, our serving groups. We have three different types of groups here at Oaks. We have serving groups, we have social groups, and we have study groups. Those are the basic types of groups we have. So you can join a group that's social. You want to hang out, meet people, all that kind of stuff. You can join a group that's about a study and, and doing a Bible study and things of that nature. Or you can join a group that serves. And uh, so that's what today is about, Serve Day. We're glad that you're here and we're excited. Today my title is Too Flawed for God. Too Flawed for God. The question is this, can you be too flawed for God to use you? I can tell you in my own personal life, there have been moments and times where I have questioned if God could use me. I have questioned if God ever wanted to see me again. Anybody ever made a mistake so big that you wondered if God even wanted to see your face? I have. I, 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 I felt at times like I had completely missed it and blown it and ruined everything. Um, there were times where I felt like I couldn't lift my hands in church because my hands weren't holy enough. I know the feeling. And the reaction for me initially was to move into a place of trying to be a Pharisee. Not intentionally, I wouldn't have called myself that at the time. But it was all about my own personal performance, how much I gave, how much I prayed, how much I served, how much I suffered, how much I whatever, how much I abstained. And when my daughter died from brain cancer, and I had built a life of performance that I thought God had to do everything I asked for because of how well I performed. I was so out of balance on one side that when my daughter wasn't healed of brain cancer, I swung all the way to the other side, and the pendulum was way over here, and then nothing mattered at all. Abstained from nothing. Complete polar opposites. It doesn't matter. I did everything possible, and it didn't work. That's a tough place to be when you're a pastor. <laughs> Imagine trying to stand up on a stage on Sunday and you don't know if you believe the Bible anymore. Challenging time for me. But what's interesting is when I was at my worst, God met me there. When I deserved him the least, he met me there. Can you be too flawed for God? Now this is not a message about it, nothing matters. This is not a message about don't abstain. This is not a message about, about it, it, your sin doesn't. That's not what this is about. This is about a God that's so good that he has the ability to use flawed people. I would submit to you he actually even prefers flawed people. Story after story after story in the Bible. Mankind is sinful. Mankind is weak, frail. We mess up. Moses was a murderer. Abraham was a liar. Jacob was a cheater. Peter had a tendency to cuss and brag, even deny Jesus three times. Matthew worked for the IRS. Paul was a lawyer. I mean, if God can use IRS folks and lawyers, my God, he can use anybody, right? Paul called himself the greatest of all sinners. Paul said, I long to do what I should, but I can't, and what I hate, I keep doing. 
Who can save me from this body of death? I feel like there's a war waging inside of me. What I want to do, I can't do. And what I hate, I keep doing. Who can save me? And then he says, but thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ, he's rescued me. See, the salvation in Jesus Christ is not a license to sin. It's a license to be free from sin. I I would love to say that I'll never mess up. I've accepted Jesus and I'll never mess up again. But anybody that knows me knows that would be a foolish thing to say. Because I might mess up this afternoon. I, I, I mean, I try hard. Some of us, it's harder to behave than others. It just is. We're ornery, as my mom would call me. But God intentionally picks the flawed. He intentionally picks the flawed. Why? He loves to use flawed folks. And the Bible says that he demonstrates his strength in our weakness. He uses the foolish to confound the wise. He hides his glory in jars of clay, earthen vessels, humans, people with frailties, people with weaknesses, people with issues, people that aren't good enough. He picks the uneducated. He uses children. His strength is perfected in our weakness. Today I want to take you to a story of a man named Samson. Samson on some levels was a human superhero. He he had from God a superhuman strength that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. We'll walk through his story today, but I want to start with the introduction to his story. This is found in Judges chapter 14, verse 1. I'm sorry, I jumped ahead. Judges 13, verse 2. A certain man of Zorah named Manoah from the clan of the Danites had a wife who was childless, unable to give birth. The angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, you are barren and childless, but you are going to become pregnant and give birth to a son. Now, see to it that you drink no wine or other fermented drink and that you do not eat anything unclean. You will become pregnant and have a son whose head is never to be touched by a razor because the boy is to be a Nazarite. Dedicated to God from the womb, he will take the lead in delivering Israel from the hand of the Philistines. A Nazarite. Now that word Nazarite, it it comes from the word Nazir in Hebrew. It means uncut, like a wild vine, uncut. And if you look at the story of Samson, he was wild. He was a wild man. We'll walk through it step by step in just a moment. But it also means consecrated one. Someone that is set apart for a holy purpose. It's connected to the city of Nazareth that Jesus came from. Jesus was called a Nazarene. Now, Jesus was not a Nazarite. I'll explain the difference. He could have, and Paul even had seasons of taking a Nazarite vow. So a Nazarite uh, vow was something that you could do for a season of consecration, but it didn't necessarily mean that you were a Nazarite for life. So Paul took seasons of Nazarite vows. I would say and subject that, or submit that Jesus took 
seasons of Nazarite vows where he abstained from certain things and did certain things potentially um, to move himself into that place of consecration. But as I walk through this, and I want to help you understand what a Nazarite vow is and what it means, there were three specific ramifications of being a Nazarite. Number one thing was that you could not, it wasn't, it, the, the, the command to Sam, Samson's mother was that he couldn't have any, she couldn't have any alcohol. But it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily only about that. It, it was so much further than that. It was no product of a grape. No raisins, no grapes, no juice, no wine, no strong drink. So don't even come close to a grape. Don't even sniff a grape. If it looks like a grape, stay away from it. It's next level. Second thing was, a Nazarite could come near no dead thing. If you were a Nazarite and your mother died, you could not go to the funeral. If you were a Nazarite, you could never put yourself in a position to become, uh, to become ceremonially unclean. You couldn't go near any dead animal. You couldn't go near anything dead whatsoever. If your child died, you can't go near the dead body. You're a Nazarite. You would break your vow. So it was a consecration unto life and completely separated from death. Lots of symbolism here. The third thing was a Nazarite was to never let a razor touch their hair. So they were to grow their hair and their hair would become a beast of its own. There was a time where Paul took a Nazarite vow in scripture and he shaved his head as a symbol of his vow and then let his hair grow. He went into a season of, of a Nazarite vow. Uh, and that's the picture here. So I want you to understand that because the Jews were called peculiar people. And a Nazarite was the most peculiar of all. Because it's a culture that revolves around wine and grapes and all of that type of thing. It's a culture that revolves around how they ceremonially take care of the dead and honor the dead. And there's all processes to all that type of thing. It's a culture that has very specific rules regarding how you could cut your hair and even trim your beard. And if you've ever seen an Orthodox Jew, you'll notice that most of the time their head on top is shaved almost all the way. And they have these sideburns that come curling all the way down like this. It's, it's, it's unique looking to us. Very distinct. Very peculiar. But in that culture, the Nazarite was even weirder. Because there were parts of Old Testament scripture that talked about how for a man to have long hair was, was unfitting of a man. So to a Nazarite literally is a distinction that anyone that sees him knows this dude's weird. He's not like us. He's not normal. Now, Samson was given a tremendous amount of strength that we'll see in the story. But Samson, because of how he grew up, I'm going to submit to you, I'm going to suggest that he had some social issues. He had some flaws in his ability to interact with people. I'm going to show you here in just this moment. Judges chapter 14, verse 1, Samson went down to Timnah, and he saw there a young Philistine woman. When he returned, he said to his father and mother, I have seen a Philistine woman in Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. 
His father and mother replied, isn't there an acceptable woman among your relatives or among all your people? Must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines to get a wife? See, it was illegal according to God's law. Set in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 3, 4, and 5. For any Jew to form a covenant with certain tribes. The Canaanites were one of them. The Philistines were a Canaanite tribe. For Samson to desire a wife or to build relationships with a Canaanite was a direct violation of God's command for the purity of the people. The reason, a couple different reasons, number one, God was planning on and had in mind to bring a savior through a pure bloodline that was 100% Jewish and that was hundreds of years off and that bloodline had to be kept pure because God had a specific genealogy that he would bring Jesus through. Number two, and equally as important, God knew that if you intermarry with someone that worships demons, it's going to be bad for your future. See, the Canaanites... It wasn't, and again, we could talk about this for a very long time. I've studied religion. I've studied ancient religions. I've studied modern religions. Uh, there's one God. His name is Jesus. We, we, we know him as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's one God who created everything. Any other spiritual being is either an angel that works on God's behalf or a demon slash fallen angel that rebelled against him. And every culture since the beginning of time that worships other gods is worshiping demons. Uh, maybe at some point I'll teach you on that and we'll walk through some of the religions of the ancient world and how they translate in to our modern world. But if you're not worshiping God and you're choosing to worship another, you're worshiping demons. And all through history, all through culture, demons want to be worshiped in extremely perverse ways. Ancient religions, ancient cultures, and don't think this doesn't still happen today, my friends. Demons are eternal. It's the same demon gods being worshiped today as it was back then, they're eternal beings. And they wanna be worshiped the same way. So when you hear about human sacrifice and you hear about sexual uh, worship and you hear about these demonic things and you see in movies uh, these secret societies where people are, are having these illicit sexual uh, things, all that, we have children's ministry, so if this is a little raw, sorry, I wasn't planning on going into this, but uh, kids should probably be in there. Uh, when you understand what happens inside of demonic worship, it's wickedly perverse. And it's displeasing to God. Can't you find an acceptable woman among our relatives, among our people? Must she go to the uncircumcised to get a wife? Samson said to his father, get her for me. She's the right one for me. She pleases me. Watch this. Watch this. This is in your Bible. What I'm about to read to you is in your Bible. It's the declaration of God's will in your Bible. This is one of the most confusing places I've ever found in the Bible. I've been studying this for decades. She's the right one for me. It's against God's command. 
She's the right ones for me. She worships demons God, demon gods. She's, if she's the right one for me. His parents, this is in your Bible. His parents did not know that this was from the Lord. That's confusing as heck. His parents did not know that it was from the Lord for him to desire the, undes- the, the forbidden? That makes no sense. Except for, it was from the Lord who, God, was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines. For at that time they were ruling over Israel. This presents a massive problem. Samson, as you will see as the story progresses, had a massive lust issue. It constantly put him in position to be with forbidden women. He liked bad girls. The kind of girls you shouldn't bring home to meet your parents. I only did that once. My dad grabbed me. He said, are you out of your mind? I'm like, what, dad? He said, don't you ever bring a girl like that to this house. Don't you ever. He goes, what if your mother would have seen her? Don't ever bring a girl. I'm like, what, Dad? He goes, show her. That's all he had to say. I'm like, you're right, Dad. <laughs> she looked like she was in a white snake video, man. She was a rocker. She was a party girl, man. Uh, and, and I learned my lesson. He liked, he liked bad girls. People that were naughty. Perverse. As the story goes, he, he engaged with prostitutes. He winds up with Delilah, who was a seductor. He he has an issue that God knew all about. It's confusing. He's flawed. Flawed to a level that you would think would disqualify you. But God still uses him. In fact, God says, it's of me. Because I'm seeking an occasion with the Philistines. Interestingly, the word occasion, this is crazy. The word occasion used in scripture is the word ta'ana in Hebrew. It's the word for when an animal is in heat. God was using the lust of Samson to create an opportunity, an occasion where he could destroy the enemy. Man, this is beautiful. God has an overwhelming, uncontrollable, passionate desire to destroy your enemy. And he would even allow and use a flawed individual to create that opportunity. I I don't know if you've ever seen an occasion in the animal world. Some of you have. My wife had the idea at one point that she wanted to collect pugs. And her dream was to have a pug wedding in the backyard. And then the girls could learn about the wonder of life, and we would have pug puppies, 
and pug babies, and the kids would take care of the pugs, pug babies, and whatever, and all of this. And, um, and then Sophie had an occasion and went into heat. And Howard, we, our animals have human names, just so you know. Sophie went into heat. Howard lost his mind. And our children witnessed things no child should ever see. It was bad. It was, it was not the Lord's will in our household. And both of those animals were fixed shortly after, never to have occasions again. God's strength is perfected in your weakness. See, God is the potter. You're the clay. If, if you ever have had any experience with pottery, you're, you're taking this mass of dirt and you're getting it wet and you're spinning it. It's making a mess. Listen, dealing with you is messy for God. But he's up for the mess. He's up for the challenge. He's not intimidated on any level by your mess. After you form the pottery, you let it dry. If it was prepared right, it dries and it's solid. The next thing you do is you put it in fire, in the kiln. When you put it in the kiln, it bakes it, and inevitably, flaws are visible. There are cracks. But the potter, unless it's so flawed it falls apart, the potter doesn't necessarily get rid of it. The potter then takes now this vessel, and he begins to paint over it with a glaze, a seal. Puts it back in the fire. And the seal covers over all the flaws. But the flaws are still there. But the seal... Man, I hope you see this. The seal makes the pottery still usable by the potter. Flaws remain, but there's a seal. The Bible calls the Holy Spirit the seal of your inheritance. Some of you have big, massive flaws that other people can see. Others of you have small little flaws that no one sees. But God sees all flaws. And the Bible says that, there's no, that all sins are equal in the eyes of God. We, we feel really good about ourselves looking at our sins compared to someone else's. Oh man, I can feel really good about myself looking at Samson. Samson gives me hope. But the reality is, is if you have pride in your heart... If you have judgment and you look down at other people, that, that sin that no one else necessarily can see is the sin that kept all of the religious people outside of God's family when Jesus showed up. Back to Samson's story. Dad, I want to go get her. So his dad arranges it. They go down to Timnah. They set a meeting, they set a, a wedding, it's a big seven-day festival. On the way down, a lion jumps out. The Spirit of God comes over Samson, he grabs this lion, and the Bible says, with the power of the Holy Spirit on him, he tears the lion to pieces as if it were a baby goat. Unbelievable. 
doesn't tell his parents. Goes to the wedding, meets the girl, the whole situation. And uh, later they're actually created, so they go and they make the meet and they set it all up and all that kind of stuff. I'm sorry, I jumped ahead of my story a little bit. Then later they go back down to the wedding and on the way to the wedding, Samson sees the dead carcass of the lion he killed. But now bees have nested inside of this rotting carcass and they have a hive in it and there's a lot of honey in, inside. So Samson goes and reaches inside of a dead carcass and pulls out this honey and eats it. He defiles himself by touching something dead. Then he takes it and he gives it to his parents. And he defiles himself and his parents. They go to the wedding. At the wedding, there's 30 men that are brought to Samson. These will be your companions. He sits down at the wedding. This is how awkward Samson is. Just meeting these people. Hey, let's make a gamble. Let's make a riddle. Okay. If you, wouldn't, if you can guess my riddle, I'll give you, there's 30 of you, I'll give each of you a set of fine clothing. But if you can't guess my riddle, every single one of you have to give me a set of fine clothing. So I get 30 sets of clothing, you all get one apiece. Deal. So he makes a riddle. Seven days into the festival, they still can't guess the riddle. Finally, they go and threaten his wife because they're her kinspeople. And say, do you love him more than us? Do you want to support this guy more than us? If you don't tell us, we will kill you and your whole family. So she begs Samson, and he tells her the answer. So they come back the final night of the feast. And they give the answer, and Samson's reply is unbelievable. Samson said, if you hadn't plowed with my heifer... Listen, I could give you a list of things not to say in front of your wife. That might be the top. If you hadn't plowed with my heifer, you wouldn't have guessed my riddle. And he gets up and leaves his own wedding, walks out on the wedding, leaves his bride. The father's so embarrassed, she gives the bride to one of those 30 companions. Samson finally cools down. He goes, actually, he goes in a rage goes and kills 30 Philistines, brings back 30 sets of clothes, pays his debts, and then goes home and leaves his wife, who gets married to someone else instead. Then he comes back and finds out he wants to see his wife, who he abandoned. Finds out, I'm sorry, man, I gave her to your friend. I gave her to your companion. Samson's now so mad that he attacks uh, he, first of all, he goes out, get this, this is how jacked up, this is like, I mean, this is almost like Jeffrey Dahmer level stuff. He, he goes and catches 300 foxes, ties torches between them, and releases them into their fields at harvest time. 300, that's the most unbelievable animal cruelty act I've ever heard of in my entire life. First of all, how did you catch 300 foxes. Talk about the mindset, the discipline to catch 300 foxes. Sets it on fire. The men come out to fight. He slaughters the whole village. It goes on and on and on. Prostitutes, harlots. I mean, a thousand people he kills in one fight. Until finally he finds himself in a place where he's so compromised. 
He's so flawed that with his head in the lap of Delilah, he finally tells his secret. She betrays him just like everyone else because Samson, can I tell you, one of the greatest flaws that Samson had was that in the entire story of Samson, there's not one mention of one single friend. No friend, no accountability, no one to tell him the truth. Every single relationship listed in Samson's life is transactional. I want this, I'll give you that. Give me this, I'll give you that. His first wife, transactional, she's just a heifer. An opportunity to make 30 friends turns it into a transaction, a means to an end for profitability for himself. Prostitutes. Delilah. Delilah, the whole thing was transactional. She sold him out for money. No friends. It cost him everything. Now what's crazy is he repented after he lost his hair. He lost his eyes. His eyes were gouged out. He lost his freedom. He was taken captive. Uh, he, he was treated like an animal. He lost his family. He lost all of his wealth. He was the judge of Israel. He was a wealthy person. Lost all of his wealth. Lost his pride, the pride that got him in all that trouble. Lost all of his pride. And as, as a beast of burden, they used him to tread the grain out. As a beast of burden, they brought him out to make fun of him. And they put him inside of a coliseum that had a rooftop where all of the entire government of the five tribes of the Philistines were on this rooftop. And in that place of brokenness and humility, he cried out to God and said, God, give me strength one last time. Talked a boy into putting his hands on the pillars. And after praying, he gave those pillars a shove. And the strength of God that was in him was so powerful that he literally pushed the pillars out and the entire auditorium, the entire Stadium fell and killed all of the government of, of Philistines. And, and it says that in his last act, he killed more people. He had a greater victory. He accomplished more in his last act than he did in his entire life. So it's a beautiful picture of redemption. But in my prayer time this week, the Lord showed me, Joel, it didn't have to be that way. Likely Samson grew up teased, made fun of. He's the weird kid, can't have grapes, can't, go to, can't be around anything dead. Every, every boy out there, if you're out there in the country, boys pick up and play with dead things. It's what we do. Can't be around anything like that. No haircut, you look like a girl. He's made fun of his whole life. Samson was wounded, he isolated himself. He never learned to forgive. He never learned to have intimate friendship. If he'd have only had a friend to talk him off the ledge, if he'd have only had a friend to be real with him. The Bible says a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. Proverbs 27 says faithful the wounds of a friend. See, a real friend will wound you at times because they need to wake you up tell you the truth, help you see what, no, what you can't see yourself. 
I made a commitment many, many, many years ago. Uh, it really doesn't matter to me. Um, I've never had goals wrapped around being rich. A lot of people, I know a lot of people, I have many friends, and, and I have people that, that, that their goal in life is, you know, I'm going to do very well in business, I'm going to make a lot of money, I'm gonna be, and I'm going to do great things with my wealth. That's good, that's wonderful, that's awesome. That's just never been how my mind works. The way my mind works is I want to make a difference. I want to do something significant. That's how my mind works. And I got a revelation years ago that if I want to do something extremely significant, it had to be something that was way bigger than I could do on my own. If I could do it on my own, it would never be significant. And the only way that I would accomplish something that big is if I made the right relationships. And if I made the right relationships, it would, it would take me being the right type of friend. And I made it a goal in my life not to be rich with money, but to be rich with friends. And anybody that knows me knows. I, I, got, I got a friend... Um, my buddy John Johnson here in the church, a good buddy of mine. You ask John, hey, do you know somebody? He's from South Africa. He goes, oh, one of my mites. I got a guy. And that's, that's Australian. I can't do South Africans too hard. But, but I got a guy. I got a guy. I got a guy. The dude is so rich in friends. He knows people. He know, I mean, it's unbelievable how, how many people he knows. He's always got a guy. He's rich in friends. Samson had everything. Zero friends. Why are small groups important? Why are serve groups important? Why are social groups important? Why, why, why are study groups important? You've heard it said a gajillion times. Show me your friends, I'll show you your future. I'll give you four really quick things. I can't share the story that I want us to end with. I'll give you four really quick things and we'll pray. Number one, how to be rich in friends. Number one, make it your goal to be valuable to people. Number two, always give first. Don't focus on what you can get. Focus on being valuable to people and always give first. Number three, plant yourself around great people. Find people that inspire you and just plant yourself around them. Not trying to get something, just trying to get inspired. Some of the greatest opportunities that came in my life was when I made friends with people that inspired me and I just planted myself around them so I could learn and something on them would, would, would rub off on me maybe. Who walks with the wise will become wise, the Bible says. Last thing, number four, be the friend you wish you had. Bible says, whoever shows himself friendly will have many friends. Well, Joel, I, I, I tried to make friends in it. Do you want the type of friend that would just try and give up? Or do you want the friend that says, I'm going to plant myself here, and I'm going to be valuable, and even if I don't know what to say, and even if I don't know what to do, even if I'm just going to plant myself and I'm going to be valuable as much as I can, I'm going to do anything I can to, to be aware and to try to give I'm going to be the kind of friend that I want to receive in my own life. That's, that's what Oaks Church is about. Oaks Church is our, our, our values, and I'm closing with this. Encounter God. Align with his people. Grow personally. Give back. That's Oaks Church. We're here to encounter God. 
aligned with the right people. You cannot fulfill the full call of God on your life if you're not aligned with the right people. Grow personally. Be willing to grow. Don't stay the way you are. Allow people to challenge you. Allow people to speak in your life. Allow people to tell you when you're wrong. Allow people to be transparent. And that's, that's probably a fifth thing on that story, on, on the things of how to be rich in friends. Be transparent. Show your flaws. Fake people don't have deep friends. Show your flaws. Father, I ask you in the name of Jesus, you've showed us so powerfully in Scripture that there's not a single person in this room or listening to this podcast or watching online that is too flawed for you to use. In fact, it's possible that you knew about our flaws the whole time and you planned around them because you have an occasion that you're trying to move yourself into. You're passionate about doing something to vanquish your enemies, to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus, you said, for this reason I came, to destroy the works of the devil. Father, we repent for our flaws. We repent for our sins. We don't want to keep sinning, Father, but sometimes we mess up. But your word says you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins if we're faithful to repent of them and to confess them. If there's anybody here today that needs to get something off your chest to God, just do it right now. Any sin that God is showing you in your life, anything you need to quit in your life, anything you need to get right and repent of, just repent to him right now. Right there where you are. Say this with me. Say, Father, please forgive me. I'm flawed. I need your help. I put my faith in Jesus. I receive righteousness by faith in Jesus. And I ask you for your Holy Spirit to come into my life, to fill me, and to seal me. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. We love you. Thank you for being with us today. We pray this message has blessed your life. And if it has, we want to invite you to sow into what God is doing here at Oaks Church. It's as simple as going to oakschurch.com and clicking the Give button. On behalf of Oaks Church, thanks for listening and have a great week.